Braver Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience, both as consultants as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Parker Avery Group, we invite you to visit www.parkeravery.com. Today, we're focusing on a pretty astounding client success story with Parker Avery's pricing lead, Josh Pollock. Josh is joined by senior manager and retail expert, Heidi Census, who worked with Josh on a follow-on project for the same client focused also on advanced pricing. Good afternoon, Josh and Heidi. Thanks for joining me today. As you both know, we publish case studies for most of our client projects so that people can get a solid understanding of the type of consulting work the Parker Avery Group does for our consumer goods and retail clients. We published the case study for this particular project a month or so after the project was completed, but really the eye-popping results came just weeks later with the client realizing $8 million in margin impact on just eight items within just eight weeks. With the solution's five-year licensing fees coming in at $7 million, that's an outstanding ROI on just the pile. So can you explain a bit about the original business challenge the client was looking to solve with this solution? Sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, thanks very much for having me. Of course. Um, uh, this was a very exciting client for us at the Parker Avery Group. Um, it, it is a, a client that's in the grocery category, um, but more on the discount side uh, rather than the premium side of the grocery category. And as such, they follow more of a low-price leadership strategy. It is the nature of grocery in the United States. There are a lot of competitors. There's a lot of regional competitors, and there's also some monstrous national competitors, monstrous in terms of size, obviously. This is a company that had done some investigation into zone pricing, but what they were doing was manual and mostly rudimentary. And what I mean by zone pricing is that they were actually had established different parts of the country where there were different kind of pricing characteristics of customers. And so they were trying to vary the pricing very slightly within those in order to sort of capture those differences in, in propensity. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, as I said, it was manual and, and frankly, it was quite rudimentary because of the fact that it was being managed on spreadsheets and uh, manually keyed into host systems, you know, it, it was too time consuming for them to uh, try and do it in a more sophisticated way. And yet their competitive set are really kind of dictated that they, they do it in, in a very sophisticated way. Um, they followed what I would call pretty much a rules-based pricing approach, um, meaning uh, you know, they would look at competitor prices. They were very intent at understanding what prices were on competitive items, you know, items that stacked up um, you know, against their items very closely, and on making sure that uh, the prices that they were offering were at a discount to the competitor. Um, and that was pretty much the, the kind of guts of their pricing strategy. But that being the case, though, on top of that, so they're very dependent on competitive price information to set their own pricing strategies. But the, their methods for gathering that competitive price data 
led to some pretty sketchy results. Hmm. Um, now, you know, granted, this is kind of an emergent area here. I mean, the technology's been around to do it um, electronically for a bit. It doesn't necessarily lend itself up well to certain categories where, you know, e-commerce isn't as well penetrated as in others, and grocery is one of those categories. So they were mostly gathering data through in-store audits where they would send a third party in with basically a shopping list. It was probably electronic. Uh, and that third party would capture you know, data on these items that were identified by the client's you know, uh, merchandising organization. But that was sort of fraught with all kinds of errors in terms of you know, the, the people who were doing it weren't super familiar with the assortment, with the individual items that the customer carried, or those at the, uh, those at the competitor. And so there was a lot of sort of data errors. There was a lot of missed data. Um, there was a lot of um, you know, collecting of mismatched prices on competitive items sure. against home items. And so there were a lot of issues with data accuracy. On top of all of that, they, they were in the process of sort of transitioning from a very regionally managed business model to a more centralized business model. And so their store operations divisions um, still had control over some pricing, and, but that types of product that they had control of the pricing over were extremely critical. Um, they were items that were in key categories. They were the key items, you know, the highest volume, basically the most impactful items. And so as a result of that, the company had sort of lost control over the price strategy of those items and, and the margin of those items uh, because each region um, was using those in order to maintain its own profit and loss statements and trying to respond to their own perceived competitive threats. So anyway, all of that by way of background and infrastructure, this client was facing, as are we all in retail these days, increased competition. So you've got things like you know Amazon going into the grocery business. You've got huge national chains like Walmart and Target who are deepening their penetration in grocery and with their deep pockets um, pushing the envelope of what you know sort of possible technologically to do in that area. And then you also had new entrants sort of on the on the lower end of the market coming in from international chains like Lidl, for example. So you know they're facing this this incredible wave of complexity and competitive pressure. And on top of that, as we've already alluded to, they'd experienced sort of these periodic swings in you know, profit as a result of having this decentralized control of their pricing and decentralized control of their margins. So the pendulum would swing, you know, in one direction and then, you know, senior leadership would see that it was going in that direction and they would uh, attempt to make a correction, which was done in the home office, but their ability to do that was really hampered by the fact that they, you know, they didn't have any kind of pricing system that would allow them to understand what would be the competitive responses to, uh, you know, to, to various price changes they might need to make in order to bring their profit back in line. I, you know, so, it, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but as as you're talking about all of this, I, you know, I'm wondering as far as what the COVID impact has been or would have been on this whole project and, and the results was this and forgive me i forget the time frame if it was during COVID or right before COVID that this pilot was rolled out yeah so it's it's pre-covid which is a simplifying factor 
you know, I'm, I'm still in touch with the client and, you know, COVID has had a very, a very large impact on their business because they're in the grocery area and they're sort of more on the discount side, you know, COVID has impacted them more in a positive way mm-hmm. than in a negative way from the perspective that, you know, demand has, has continued to come their way and actually to increase as opposed to dwindling like it did with so many other categories. Right. The thing about COVID is it represents, because there's so much excess demand for a lot of products you have in your assortment, it represents an opportunity to capture some extra margin, which means raising prices. Um, On the other hand, it's obviously sort of in bad faith uh, to profiteer on, you know, a national crisis, an international crisis. Yeah. Um, So you don't want to be put in a position where, um, you know, you're doing price gouging. Mm -hmm. So. You know, my understanding is that during during the height of the COVID challenge or the early days of the COVID challenges back in the spring of 2020, that they actually put a bit of a moratorium on profit-based price changes, in other words, on price increases. Uh, and so they, they continued to um, address areas where they were in danger of no longer being price competitive if a competitor dropped prices on something. Um, but they would not look to raise prices in the interest of bringing in more margin. And they took it as an opportunity to kind of take a little hiatus in their process of rolling, you know, rolling advanced pricing functionality out to more of their categories uh, and instead concentrated on, they, there's a couple of categories and we'll get to this in a minute, you know, within grocery, within this client, and I think it's pretty universal, where there's a lot of um, complexity in the business and as a result, it creates a lot of complexity in the data. And so they took that hiatus as an opportunity to kind of take a step back and work on solving the complexities in those data in order to, in that in those data in order to bring those you know, sort of critical but more complex uh, categories online with their advanced pricing tool. Right. What was the Parker Avery Group's role on this particular project? The way I characterize it is, we essentially acted as an adjunct to the client's personnel, and by that I mean. We tend to come in and spend a lot of time early on getting to understand the client and their business model and how they compete and how they drive that value and also their culture and their customer base and all that sort of thing. And then we're in a position to be able to behave as if we're part of the team, part of the company, um, but but a part that had amassed deep expertise and experience, in this case, in advanced pricing. So, you know, you could call it sort of rent an expert, if you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> We tend to, you know, become very much part of the team, be um, perceived as just an extension of their internal team, and so in that in that capacity, what we did is we supported that client through the selection of advanced pricing software, and then eventual implementation of that software. And so, to be to be a bit more specific, what we brought to the table was, you know, as I said, our expertise and experience in sort of industry leading practices um, in the kinds of pitfalls that we have experienced with other clients or heard about second and third hand from working with providers in this space. We structured the activities uh, that they went through, the tasks and so forth. We provided project oversight. We advised them on pricing strategy and ways in which that they may want to consider rethinking their pricing strategy, uh, both just sort of writ large but also in light of the fact that they were putting in place new capabilities that they didn't have before. Um, so both of those things tend to dictate that a company needs to 
take a good hard look at their existing pricing strategy and look for opportunity. We supported them in a technical way uh, through the technical design and the development. And we're not, you know, coders. We're not, right. um, you know, system integrators. But we kind of speak the language a bit, yep. you know, enough to kind of translate between what the business people need, uh, what the software provider needs to know, and what the technical people need to know in order for them to sort of go go off and do their individual tasks. So actually a bunch of the work that we do um, is to sort of act as that go-between and that communicator and kind of, if you will, ride herd on on those processes on behalf of the on behalf of the client. We help with the preparation of data, which is one of the you know, the main things that you need to provide to these types of software. Advanced pricing software is not it doesn't really require typically a ton of configuration, a ton of customization from client to client. A lot of solutions in the space of software as a service where you're working with common code to essentially all the other clients that that, that software provider has. So the real biggest challenges in, in uh, advanced pricing projects are around getting the data, conditioning the data. In some cases, it has to be created from scratch right. uh, and making sure it's being you know, sort of communicated to the pricing application in the formats that the application requires. The data cleanliness, you hear about that so often, is, but it's so important and, and people underestimate that, especially within a respect to pricing. Um, but also that business liaison role that you guys played when you're on the project. I mean, that communication with the business is, is key to getting that implementation success and have the business user's adoption optimal. That's part of the criticality with the success of the project is the adoption and the sustainment. A lot of times when we do projects, there are resources who've been in the seat for many years and they think their spreadsheets are the best. Yep. They know what they're doing. <laughs> they know their competition. Even though they have very regional competitors, I'm thinking, I don't know if they're still around, but Ucrops in Virginia, yep. favorite store. They're not. Um, they're are not. They, no, they got bought, but they're... Their, their commissary is still open, so their products are still sold in other retailers, but Ucrop sadly is gone. Which is also a face of this domain of grocery stores, is that people come and go, they get bought and sold, and the amount of information that the end users, the pricing specialists have to manage, has become overwhelming. And, and as Josh had mentioned, there are new entrants still coming into the market, and this company is continuing to expand, so... A lot of times, folks in the seats don't trust the math. They think they're smarter than the math. They think that my spreadsheet is the best thing ever. I've got the calculations down. Yep. And we have to bring them along for the ride and get them to adopt and sustain. That's the only way you're going to get these results, to get the team to understand the math and trust the math. And it's a special skill set. It's not You can't just put anybody in the seat and expect them to be able to be an expert at figuring out whether it's the right time to increase the price of tinfoil by 10 cents or decrease the price of tinfoil by 10 cents. And with that elasticity thought in mind, we really need people who can comprehend what's going on in the marketplace and trust the system if it's been set up properly. And that's the role that Parker Avery played, is getting them across that line to where they they did trust the math. And we didn't just walk out the door the day the system went live, it's helping them along the journey of understanding the results. And Heidi, that's a great point. And then to take it, take it a step further, you know, for, for any anybody out there listening who may be you know considering advanced pricing kinds of solutions, 
one of the differentiators you see out there in the market as you look at different solutions is the degree to which the decision making or the recommendation is transparent to the end user, right? So there are different degrees of black box uh, depending on the solution that you look at. And to, to a certain degree, the success of one of these is dependent on the ability of the pricing team to explain to the merchant how the tool got to the price recommendation that was made. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very, very difficult. I would say it's almost an impossible task to get either the pricing team or the merchants over the hurdle of saying, well, because the system said so and you should trust the science, right? <laughs> you, you, really, you really need to see, and again, partly because of the garbage in, garbage out issue. I mean, there's, there's lots of, it can lead a pricing tool to make a recommendation that you can't really act on, um, even if it's following all the rules and so forth. Uh, I think that's, that's an outstanding point, but it's also, I think, uh, you know, an imperative on the providers in the space to make sure that they're arming you know, the pricing team with information required to be convincing. And Josh, you also bring up a really good point about the recommendations that cannot be acted upon. Mm -hmm. Every state may have different laws and regulations about pricing. Mm -hmm. um, in some countries, you cannot ever offer a retail price below cost. Mm -hmm. And to set up that level of granularity, once again, it becomes very complex for a small team to try to manage and know all of those rules, those regulations. And in some cases, they can sell liquor. Some states, they can't. In some cases, there are state minimum thresholds of pricing that you can have. And so being able to work through all of that and set up those rules, and like Josh said, trusting the system to tell you what's right, sometimes you simply can't act on them. But at least you know, if you could, what the results would be. And that's also part of it, too, is not just saying the price should be $2.99, but here is the future impact on your profit and sales if you do right. make this decision. And it's not just, it's two ninety nine. Okay, fine, great, but so? Right. So what? <laughs> Knowing what the future forecast and the impact on the margin helps a, a pricing analyst understand better that this is the right decision, and then they can also monitor the results. Did it actually do what it said it was going to do. Did I get the profit that I thought I would have? Or do I need to tweak the rules a little bit to be able to you know, change my rounding rules or something like that to be able to make sure that I make the best decisions possible? Completely agree. Just to, to talk a little more about some of the specifics of the things that we, that we did with this client, as we moved past the point where we had a technical design and during the time period where uh, you know, the technical resources associated with the project were doing their magic and creating the interfaces and gathering the data and so forth, then it was our job to lead process design and to define roles and responsibilities because many of them were changing in relation to pricing. And there were even some roles that were, that had been responsible for pricing that lay within say the, the merchandising organization that switched into, you know, within the buying team uh, that switched into a dedicated pricing team. So even though they were technically still within merchandising, their reporting changed, some of their job responsibilities changed. And of course, that's always a very, very sensitive topic whenever oh, sure. you're sort of opening, opening people's lives. So change management was an extremely important aspect of this project. It, you know, it is on many of them, but especially if you're, if you're changing people's roles and responsibilities and so forth. Uh, and so we guided that activity. Um, in that role, we developed training uh, around the changes in price strategy, around the processes that had been designed. Uh, and we actually did several layers of that training. So 
you know, one set of training that was aimed at senior executives that had to understand now this is how I operate in this new pricing world. Um, another one is sort of the middle level of executives that actually have more hands-on responsibility in terms of, you know, these were roles that needed to be able to understand the price recommendations and, and the ones that had been agreed to by the buyers and then approve them. And then another layer that had to go to the buying teams and the pricing teams that was even more detailed in terms of what, what they need to go through. So there, there were several levels of that training or communication that went out to the organization to make sure that they were you know, capable of taking advantage of this new tool as it came out. Uh, and then we supported them through the pilot and, you know, and also through multiple waves of rollout. And, and our, our idea was sort of the, the surgery idea kind of like, you know, we would, we would watch one or we would do one, they would watch one. Uh, and then they would do one you know, sort of with us looking over their shoulder. Then they were comfortable going out and doing sort of the next one themselves. And, and after a very short period of time, this client, and I think it's true with many clients, were sort of so comfortable with their role and with the discourse and all that sort of thing that they really just sort of wanted us hanging about the edges of the room so that they could direct a question to us if required. So I consider that, you know. A, a very a very successful change management activity when you're there ready to support them and you sort of plan to do it and they don't really require it anymore like maybe once in a once in a meeting they'll turn to you with a direct question but otherwise the the chicks are leaving the nest right? yeah <laughs> that's excellent um yeah i was going to ask about the you know success story and the, the change management the role the organizational design redesign really has to go hand in hand with solution implementations. You can't just, you know, stick it in there and hope it works and cross your fingers. That success, I think, was very much due to the change in org design elements that you guys provided. You do need to keep in mind that you can't just throw anybody into that role and hope that they are going to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, when we've talked to other countries, they have a hard time finding skill sets particular to this because to some extent, it is very fancy math. And to be able to have that almost but not quite data scientist skill, certain markets, especially in, in certain areas of the country, those may be harder to find and they become premium skills that you need to be able to resource. Like I said, you can't just put Bob in the chair and hope that Bob does a really good job. Bob needs to have the right skills. So that kind of understanding and that level of being able to detail a job description of especially and exactly what Bob has to have in his back pocket to be able to do the job needs to be really clearly defined for the client. Right. Well, to your point, you know, I think this client and most clients, so they've got to be a little creative as well from the perspective that the kind of analytical mindset is more important in these pricing specific roles than merchandising knowledge or knowledge of a particular category. Because they're analytic and because they typically get, you know, assigned to support a certain category, they amass that knowledge, that category specific knowledge incredibly quickly. But, you, but it's much harder to train somebody who isn't an anal, you know, analytic mm -hmm. by nature, that's not their thought process, to be analytic than it is to take somebody analytic and train them about the mechanics of a particular category. And so what, what we find with our clients is that frequently they have the right people within the company, but they're just sitting in these disparate seats all over different organizations, right? right? I mean, one might be in customer insights, one might be in store operations, you know, one, one might be an analyst in IT, one might be a buying assistant. So it, it's kind of fun to watch to watch those teams come together from that perspective if they're if they're being sourced internally. 
because it is like this sort of marriage of folks from you know different areas of the company who suddenly have this shared purpose. That's a great point, Josh, because it also it's an opportunity to reskill people as well. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's easier to train someone who's analytic to learn about butter than it is to train somebody who knows everything about butter to become analytic if they don't have that skill. Yeah, it's yeah, a right brain, left brain type of conversation, right? I mean, I, I'm yeah. analytic. My sister is not. I can't teach her math, and, and it'll never happen. And we learned that long, long ago. Yeah. And it's not a value statement. It's just the way we're, we're created. It's a little, little easier in the grocery space. It's not like uh, apparel merchandising, right, where you're, you're dealing with merchants who are looking for the latest trend and, you know, applying their aesthetic, you know, that sort of thing to it. And grocery... You know, there is certainly some of that, don't get me wrong, but um, it is more of a commodity-based business. So the nature of merchandising is tends to be a little bit more analytic to start with. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I would say, you know, talking about the success uh, with this particular client, one of the things that I think was a real factor was change readiness. And, and as much as I'd like to take credit for that, I think the reality is that we were you know, we did a good job of communicating, and I, and I really throw a lot of that on the on the client project team. They were they were led by an extraordinary group of people who were um, extremely quick on the uptake and great communicators and very well respected within the company. Which again, I think is a pointer. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna try and start this new capability from scratch, you need to put somebody in in, in place who's heading it who has an innate credibility. You know, and having seen other clients who, who failed at that, uh, it creates a much greater hurdle in terms of you know, acceptance. But this client fortunately didn't have that challenge. They were really kind of thirsting for the solution because the solution provided much better quality competitive data. It was more accurate. It was more granular. That was one of the things that you know they, they were basically taking these rough estimates, if you will, or semi-accurate data that was being collected periodically and being asked to do math to three and four decimal places on it. When we upgraded their competitive data capability, and this included web scraping um, and changing you know, the frequency and nature of their in-store price gathering, the quality of their data got so much better. And the insights that the merchants could produce as a result of that were so much better. It made their lives, it made their lives just sort of incredibly better on a day-to-day basis. And then when you take that and then you know that you're supporting their pricing decisions with science, they now know something they didn't know before. And on top of that, we gave them a partner in the pricing organization, a thought partner, to advise them on critical business decisions, right? So they literally had a kind of dedicated analyst who understood their category after a period of time and understood all the ins and outs of the components that made up a pricing decision, um, that took a lot of sort of onus off of the off of the merchant uh, teams. Right. They were extremely happy uh, with that. Uh, on top of that, we talked a little bit about their rudimentary zone pricing capability, and, and because advanced pricing uh, solutions, you know, are sort of organically made to be able to manage that, they were able to expand their zone pricing. They were better able to target the prices within those zones um, to specific regional competitors or specific regional characteristics in terms of how um, price sensitive they were about, you know, particular products or whatever. And so that that's a major driver of increased margin when you can do that. But at the same time, on a, on a whole, if you look at the company on a whole, it actually allows you to maintain or improve your competitive price indexing. 
because you're what was happening is you're you're ensuring that you're being hyper competitive on items where customers have told you through their behavior over time that they're very price sensitive. But we all know that there's it varies by customer, it varies by you know all different kinds of sure. factors. But we all know that there's products where you just throw them in your basket and you literally don't give a second thought to the price unless it you know unless it's just glaringly you know, kind of out of sync with your expectation of what you would pay for that. And that's where there's the opportunity to, you know, make a nickel more uh, on the part of a retailer uh, because you don't even, you know, as a, as a customer, you don't even notice. It, it doesn't matter to you. Right. So that's a big plus for them, both just in terms of overall, but also in terms of zone pricing, because those tendencies do change based on sort of part of the country and who the competitors are and that sort of thing. One of the things that they really struggled with, given that they were a discounter and that they were very much, you know, low price um, offering in this space was that they were very uncomfortable raising prices. And they really sort of had this philosophy that a customer will notice and care deeply if we're not, you know, some certain percentage below the, the competition. And the science underlying advanced pricing gave them the confidence that they could raise certain prices. And that coupled with the pilot activity, which we'll talk about in a minute, really, really gave them that license to be. And again, nobody's talking about gouging customers. Sure. Right? We're talking about these little marginal increases of nickels and dimes on items that customers just don't, they really don't care what the prices were. It, it, uh, it's what delivers these sort of super normal profit returns. Another thing that um, Heidi alluded to earlier is these tools, this tool with this customer gave them the ability to examine their pricing strategies in an analytical way that they never had before. Because what these tools do is they allow you to, okay, so this is what the price recommendation is. Here's what would happen if you didn't take it financially. Here's what happens if you do take it. You could also do what-if analyses to say, well, if I change the scenario, if instead of a 15% discount, I'm going to have a 10% discount to the customer, what does that do to my demand? What does that do to my margin? Mm -hmm. And you can really examine just about any aspect of your pricing strategy in this kind of virtual world. And, and while the predictable, you know, the predictability isn't 100%, it's a heck of a lot better than anything that you can do manually. And that's significant so, across, you know, how many categories, how many products that those what if analysis result in significant, meaningful financial impacts. So I, I think that's so important. And, you know, as we talked about <laughs> people trying to get away from their spreadsheets because that's what they've done. That's what they love. I myself, and that's, you know, Excel nerd, self-admitted. And yeah. I, I get that passion for what you've created and what you're used to. But when your eyes are opened to a whole new world of possibilities regarding being able to see sort of in the future with these more analytical applications, it's astounding. It's astounding for, for yeah. retailers. Well, right, and you know it's in it's in the nature of advanced pricing solutions, and I I probably should even define my terms. So I've talked about advanced pricing as a sort of a, a blanket throughout this discussion, right? Um, and there's a lot of different ways of defining that, but just for purposes of our conversation, so advanced pricing includes things like regular price optimization, so that's your everyday shelf price, your ticket price. There's also capability out there around marking down product at the end of life in an optimal way. 
right? So that's markdown optimization. And, and that takes into account your sort of your in inventory position mm -hmm. at various locations within your supply chain, because you know, we, we all know that the, the greatest imbalances between supply and demand happen at sort of the individual store. And so if you've got the ability to address those inventory overages and underages differently by store, you know, you, you, you decrease your aged inventory much more quickly and you uh, retain much more of your margin associated with that clearance process. And then finally, promotions optimization, which is which is a bit of a newer offering in the space and is still really developing. But it combines elements of sort of promotions management, uh, planning, and analysis with an optimization capability, where you can do that what ifing on different offers and different um, you know promotional vehicles and so forth to see what the um, the financial impact would be. So that's kind of what I mean when I talk about advanced pricing. And with all of these. All of these tools, every penny that you know, I can add to a price. And again, I, I'm not talking about being malicious. I'm not talking about you know taking advantage of customers. But every penny that I can add to a price is a penny that goes directly to my bottom line. Right. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So it's the, the the nature of these of these particular solutions is to be able to drive really superior return on investment to any other application that I've encountered in my career. That's not insignificant for sure. Josh, that's a really good point because in a lot of cases, writing a business case for an ERP is tough. Writing a business case for merchandise financial planning is tough because yep. it doesn't it doesn't really affect your sales. It doesn't affect your profit. It's just more of foundation or planning. But the pricing projects, they sell themselves. Mm -hmm. This is a great way to really control how you're financially going to be making additional funds and the business case writes itself bottom line that's a good segue into my next uh question kind of a wrap-up question i guess if, if i'm a retailer and i'm hearing this and i'm operating with spreadsheets and disparate systems and things like that and i'm interested what's what's the next step how do i i don't even begin down this journey of uh, advanced pricing solutions it's, again it's a great question and there's all kinds of levels of approach that can be taken to make that next leap. And it partly depends on sort of the nature of your business and the scale, the sophistication of your home system. So, you know, at the Parker Avery Group, you know, we've gone in and we've done, you know, for, for clients that didn't feel they were necessarily ready for a full-blown system for one reason or another, usually having to do with their system infrastructure or their, their data infrastructure, um, we've gone in with the analytics arm uh, and worked in, in tandem the business and the analytics side to do what amounts to an analytics study or an, an elasticity study. So we could come in and give you insight into what is the price sensitivity of individual items within your assortment or, you know, categories or subcategories if the items turn over too quickly uh, to be able to really get a good data stream on an individual item and use that. We, we, we have built around that a process and a tool set that allows customers to make more informed pricing decisions on, on the basis of that uh, of that kind of study. So that's sort of at one end of the spectrum. In, in the middle of the spectrum is we actually have an offering of price uh, optimization solutions in the markdown space and in the regular pricing space, which are, you know, we, we provide an analytics engine, but the input and the output actually can can be accessed through Excel. So it's, a, it's another step of sophistication from the perspective that it is actual optimization rather than sort of better informing a merchant decision. 
but it doesn't have the same kind of overhead associated with a full-blown commercial system. Right. And then beyond that, if you're of scale, then certainly looking at one of the commercial solutions out there is a good bet for you. And again, there you know there are um, solutions at sort of different ranges of scale uh, and different types of capability depending on what business you're in. And so, what we do a lot is we'll come in and we'll advise potential clients or clients you know that, that want to do preliminary work with us, either one on which one of those paths makes the most sense for them given what their needs are and what their current level of sophistication is. Yeah, that's that's great that there's different kind of avenues to take depending on where you are in your maturity, on your scale, and, and things like that. And to add to that, certain commodities and vertical brands may not need the full suite of advanced pricing. Sure. Um, Josh had mentioned three components, regular price, markdown, promotions, there's also the concept of dynamic pricing where you can change the price during the day if, should you need to. But if you're a vertical brand and you don't have a direct competitor, certain things like regular price optimization may not be for you because you don't have carryover product if you're a fashion brand. You may be more focused on promotions or markdown optimization to try to manage the end of life cycle based on whatever inventory you're carrying in each of your stores. So you need, as Josh said, you need to evaluate what component would be most appropriate for your business. And that's where we can help. You don't need to buy the whole suite necessarily, <laughs> but what is most optimal for the type of business you run, your competition, and the commodities you sell. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic approach. I, I think these are some great insights and some great ways for people to start thinking about how to go down a path that they may not be that comfortable with. Thank you, Trisha. It was great speaking with you, Josh. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It was really a pleasure, you guys. So that wraps up today's episode. We hope you found value in the content and in the discussion. If you have any questions and would like to reach out, please feel free to visit our website at www.parkeravery.com. We also invite you to join our conversation on LinkedIn. Just search for the Parker Avery Group.